this is the last of three services we've had today. I think we had a record attendance out of at the sunrise service. We had, I think, 86 out there. Uh, first service that we had here at 8 o'clock this morning had a full house. So you guys have plenty of room to spread out, all right? Take a nap or whatever you'd want to do. Uh, no, but seriously, we've had a great, great time of worship this week. And uh, we appreciate you being here. You know, when we look at the great figures of history... Uh, especially around the time of Jesus. We actually have more writings about Jesus, more eyewitness accounts about Jesus than we do Alexander the Great. We understand a lot of Alexander the Great's life by a biography that was written by two men. And that biography was written uh, about 400 years after the fact. But we trust that because it's an eyewitness account and because the documentation's there. We look at the great poets of that same period uh, uh, Hor- uh, Vir- Virgil and Horace. They were great poets, but their writings weren't completed until after they had been dead for about 400 years. But we don't doubt their existence. We don't uh, doubt the reality of who they were. Uh, you even look at closer history to where we are now. We, we know about Napoleon Bonaparte, but we've never seen a picture of him. We, we, we know that he died on the Isle of Helena, but the issue of his death is kind of still... Uh, it's kind of sketchy because the documentation's not real clear. However, we don't doubt that presentation because we trust the eyewitnesses and we trust the manuscripts. When we look at Jesus, there are a thousand times more ancient manuscripts about Jesus describing his life, his deeds, his ministry, his miracles, what he did. Uh, There are over a thousand times more manuscripts about him than there are uh, nearly every other classical ancient figure of that time period. That includes people like Alexander the Great. That includes people like the Emperor Claudius and Nero and, and Tiberius. We know a lot about them, but there's still more evidence that Jesus was a real person, that he really did these things that the, gospel tell, the Gospels tell us about. Uh, we, we look at Easter, and it's an awesome thing, but when you think about if Jesus was real or not, man, we divide our history up by when Jesus showed up. We look at history, and it's called B.C., before Christ, and then A.D., after the death of Christ. Jesus changed history, even the way we log things uh, on a calendar. Easter marks, and it commemorates the resurrection, the empty tomb. Uh, How and why could such a torturous event of the death of Messiah affect eternity and affect this world if Jesus wasn't who he was And Jesus wasn't who he says he was. He was the son of God. He told us that much. And Jesus uh, provided irrefutable proof for that when he came out of the grave. It was sort of like, show me the money, show me the proof. And that empty tomb is the proof. Christ is absolutely a unique person in history. Uh, if, even if we discounted anything and everything else, Jesus is unique. When we have birth announcements today, uh, we get a month or so away or two months away from the birth of a baby, we'll send out birth announcements and we'll have a baby shower. You don't get 10 years announcement time. You don't get 20 years announcement time to prepare for that. But when you look at the life of Jesus, um, we had a birth announcement for Jesus starting 10,000 years before he was born up to the 4th century B.C. There are over 100 different prophecies in the Old Testament given through 18 different prophets 
all pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. He was going to be born of a virgin. He was going to do these things. And even when King David was writing the Psalms, he talked about Jesus. Uh, he talked about the Messiah on a cross. Now, here's the thing: when David wrote that, the crucifixion people were not being crucified at that time. He described a way of killing people, executing people that had not even really been, had not been around. So when we see things like that, we scratch our head and say, "Man, maybe there's got to be something to this. There has to be some weight to it." Uh, one thousand years, uh, one thousand years BC, one thousand years before Jesus was born, the, uh, King David talks to us about the crucifixion. Every other consequential person in history, we look at their life, and when their life is over, that's the end of their work. When you look at people like Abraham and Moses or Confucius or Muhammad uh, or Buddha, these people died, and that was the end of it. Nobody expected the tomb of Abraham to be anything other than filled. Or Moses' grave. Or Confucius' grave. Or Buddha's grave. Nobody ever said they saw those guys alive. In fact, Muhammad's grave. If you go to Medina today, uh, that's where his grave is. It's still full of Muhammad. And every year, tens of thousands of Muslims will, will go to his grave site and, and see it occupied. Church, Jesus' grave is different. In fact, it's a lot different. His grave is empty. Uh, every other figure at that time period, their grave is still stuffed full of bones, but not his. You see, Christ showed the highest standard of, of living uh, with his life by showing compassion, by showing love, by showing mercy, uh, by showing peace, by healing people. You look at his death, it was very unique. But then we get a little bit further and we see the resurrection. And that resurrection is kind of, if you will, uh, I believe it when I see it with my own eyes. Well, when we look at the historical accounts and the first-hand evidence and the first-hand testimony, the tomb of Jesus is God saying, I told you so. This is who He is. This is the Redeemer. This is the Savior. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 through 20 uh, says this, but, but, but tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there is no resurrection of the dead, that you don't come back? For if there's no resurrection of the dead then even Christ himself hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then all of our preaching is worthless. Our worship is worthless. Our, our, our ministry, our, our service, all of that, it doesn't mean anything. It's useless. And even our faith is useless. It's not worth anything if Jesus is still dead. Uh, for we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that Christ was raised by God from the grave. But... That can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. Now, that resurrection of the dead is what we're looking forward to. Our graves being empty. Then Christ hasn't been raised. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you're still guilty of your sins. If Jesus was still in the grave, we're still sinners. We're still going to hell. We're still going to be separated from God. In verse 19. And if our hope is in Christ alone in this life, we're to be the most pitied people in the world because we're the most foolish people in the world. Without the resurrection, we're trusting, in, we're trusting in imagination. We're trusting in a fable. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Y'all, this is the central message of the early church. Christ has been raised. Christ is alive. The tomb is empty. Uh, he is risen. That is the message of the church. That was what was preached after Jesus was resurrected. Y'all, the New Testament gives us accounts, multiple sources, first-hand eyewitness testimony about Jesus' 
resurrection. In fact, when you look at Jesus after the resurrection, he wasn't low-key. He didn't go on the down low. He appeared several times, up to ten times, and nobody ever said, oh, I saw Jesus, and then three, uh, three years later they'd say, oh, man, I was just playing with you. I, I didn't see no Jesus. Once people said they saw Jesus with their own eyes after the resurrection, it was locked. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't deny what their eyes had seen. They could not deny the reality that Jesus was alive. It wasn't a hoax. It wasn't some type of a ruse. Not one single person said somebody stole the body. Not one single person said, oh, it's just a big joke. Not, uh, nor do we find any historical record of any of those witnesses are retracting their testimony. So when we look at the historical record, when we look at the documents, when we look at the first-hand accounts, when we look at Jesus, we have more evidence that He was real than Alexander the Great. We have more historical evidence that Jesus was, was who He was uh, than we do lots of other figures of that same time. And the reason why is this. We have the eyewitness accounts of people who lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, ministered with Jesus, slept, ate, and walked along the Galilean shore with him. We have these first-hand accounts. You've got the, you have uh, the disciple Matthew, and you have the disciple uh, John, who saw these things, and they wrote them down, and they never retracted them. Mark also was an eyewitness. He was a kid whenever Jesus was around. He was a teenager. But Mark tells us all about the life of Jesus. Dr. Luke learned about Jesus through the Apostle Paul. He tells us all about Jesus. Uh, Jesus. Jesus appeared to a lot of people, not just when he was alive, but even after the resurrection. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the other Mary, a woman by the name of Salome, and Joanna one occasion. He appeared before the Apostle Peter. There's another time. He appeared before Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus. That's another occurrence. He appeared before the 11 disciples minus Thomas, the doubting Thomas. When Jesus showed up one time to talk to him, Tom wasn't there. But the next time he showed up... Thomas was there. So those two different occasions. Uh, we see Jesus appearing to the disciples on a, a mountain in the Galilee. We see him approaching seven different disciples along the Sea of Galilee. We have him talking to James, his half-brother. We see him talking to the disciples before Jesus goes to uh, the Mount of Olives to ascend back to heaven. Y'all, over a 40-day period, Jesus presented himself no less than 10 times in front of over 500 people. 500 people on one occasion multiple people at other times y'all the bible record the historical manuscripts the historical evidence it all points to one thing that jesus is real jesus is alive because of their experiences with the resurrected jesus these apostles were in a unique position to tell us exactly what Jesus did, what He said, what He taught, how He felt, how He responded, how He reacted, how He died, and how He was born again. These are eyewitness accounts. It wasn't a thing like Alexander the Great and his biography was written 400 years later. Man, these were books that were written within a generation of the life of Jesus. These were eyewitness testimonies of people who saw, them, saw Jesus with their own eyes. They had been a part of His life and His ministry, His miracles, His death, and His resurrection. Y'all, I'm going to trust these 
witnesses. And if the claims about Jesus were a lie, ask yourself this. If the claims about Jesus were a lie, and it was all just a big fabrication and a big, a big joke, and it never really happened, um, don't you think that some of the disciples could have told us the parts that were, that were baloney? If the virgin birth didn't happen, it would have been easy for one of those guys saying, oh yeah, it's all true except that part. Or yeah, it's all true except that whole wine turning into water, uh, water into wine, that part's not real. These disciples would have been able to tell us if the story was butkus, but they didn't. They gave us the story the way they saw it. They gave us the story the way they experienced it. They wrote it down and we believe it, just like we would believe all the other historical accounts of other great figures in history. The Apostle Matthew, the Apostle John, uh, the, the disciples who saw him. Uh, and, and when you look at the disciples, they were willing to die for the resurrected Jesus. They were willing to lay down their lives because there's no way they could say, oh, he's, he's alive, he's risen, and not follow through with that. It would have been easy for these disciples. And by the way, 11 of the 12 disciples, they died a martyr's death. They were beheaded or they were crucified upside down, boiled in a vat of oil, uh, starved to death, things like that. Y'all, if, if you were one of those disciples and, and you knew the story was a lie, you would not have died for a lie. You would not have said, you, you would have said this, I would have said this. I, I'm just playing, it's all play, play. It didn't really happen that way, and every one of them would have lived. All they would have had to do is, is say, oh, I, we were making that up. But guys, none of them, none of them would retract their story because they saw him with their own eyes. No one's going to die for something that they invented. No one's going to die for something they believe was false. Seeing and talking and touching, to the, uh, touching the risen Jesus, it transformed those disciples. They committed the rest of their lives to the resurrected Jesus. They spent the, less, the rest of their ministry telling everybody the simple message of the early church. That Jesus is alive. That he is uh, no longer in the tomb. That was the early message of salvation through Christ. They couldn't change what their eyes had seen. They could not change what their ears had heard. They could not retract what they had felt with their own hands. They are telling us their story. They are telling us what they saw. Let me give you 12 historical facts about this weekend of 2,000 years ago that are irrefutable. It's the facts. Number one, history tells us that Jesus was crucified. Fact. Number two, history tells us that Jesus was buried. Nobody debates that fact, that Jesus was buried. Number three, his death caused the disciples to flee like a bunch of roaches when the lights get turned on. When he, uh, when, he, when he died, they all fled, with the exception of John. Fourth thing we know is this, with absolute certainty, the tomb was empty. Even the government said so. Even the Roman proctator said the tomb is empty. Everybody believed that that was the facts. Another thing is that the disciples had experienced what they believed were little, uh, literal appearances of Jesus. The disciples said, yep, we went fishing with Him. Yep, we had supper with Him. Yep, He talked to us. Yep, we walked with Him on the road to, the, uh, to Emmaus. Yep, we did this. Yep, we did that. That's the disciples' witness. That is their testimony. So we have that historical written evidence that they had encountered Him. And also this, the disciples, like I told you, when, when Jesus died on the cross, they fled like a bunch of scared uh, little children. But after they saw the resurrected Jesus, man, they manned up. 
They were sent all over the world. They preached in front of kings and princes. And they went to, to India. They went to Spain. They went to Europe. They went everywhere. That's what happened because they saw something that changed them from being wimps to warriors. They weren't the same people they were after the resurrection. And another thing, this is historical fact. This was the message of the early church. Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. Church, that's the same message we're preaching today. Why? Because the message is still true. He was born, he died, he was buried, and he's resurrected. Another thing that's without historical, uh, without historical doubt is this. The church was born in Jerusalem 40 days after Jesus was resurrected. That's where the church started. Doesn't matter where you come from, that's where the church started. That's a historical proof. Here's another thing. Orthodox Jews who came to Christianity after the resurrection, they stopped celebrating the Sabbath on Saturday, and they started celebrating the Sabbath on Sunday. You know why? Jesus was alive. So they focused their celebration on the resurrection day of Sunday when the sun came out. Another thing is this, James, the half-brother of Jesus. You know in the Bible, the book of James, that is Jesus' half-brother. Now, this is a fact. James, his half-brother, if you grew up in a house with brothers and sisters, nobody knows you like your brothers and sisters, you know. James spent his entire life up to a certain point believing that Jesus was a joke. Jesus was not the Son of God. Grew up believing that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, was not the Christ, he was not the Lord. But Jesus dying on the cross, then the resurrection... Guess who, guess who decided to get on the Jesus train? The guy who grew up in the room next door to Jesus in Mary and Joseph's house. His own half-brother didn't believe him until after the resurrection. Well, Brother Mike, what's that mean? It means this. Something happened. Something occurred. There was an event that transpired that changed James' opinion about Jesus. And what was that, Brother Mike? It was the reality of the resurrection. You got the Apostle Paul, the, the church's uh, earliest and greatest antagonist and would be destroyer. He went from town to town to town trying to execute the church, trying to abort the church before it was ever born, refuted the existence of Jesus, and sure enough, Jesus comes right back down into the middle of the road to Damascus, and Paul, uh, Saul becomes Paul, and the resurrected Jesus talks to him. Historical fact. Paul was not the man he was before he had met the resurrected Jesus. Church. I tell you, this, this is kind of an apologetics message today just to let you know where we stand as Christians. But man, there is more evidence for your Savior and my Savior. The existence of real Jesus changing lives all this time than any other historical figure in history. You don't worship a fairy tale or some boogaboo God. You serve a real God. A Savior that is alive. And because he's alive, man, you have, you have that same victory that he had over the grave. I was reading a story uh, this last week. Back in 2011, there was a, an aid worker and an economic advisor who was doing work in Pakistan. His name was Warren, uh, Warren Weinstein. And uh, he was taken hostage by al-Qaeda. And uh, the, the al-Qaeda leadership was there in Pakistan hiding. And uh, he was there. He was being held captive, being held hostage. And sadly, there was, a, uh, there was a drone strike on the place where he was being held. Uh, the drone strike was by his own government, by the U.S. government. And we were, we were shooting al-Qaeda leaders. We were bombing them and killing them. We didn't know that he was there. Uh, 
the family didn't know that he was dead for four years. It wasn't until 2015 that the report came out. Now, that's horrible, and our, our hearts go with the, the Weinstein family, but this is, this is kind of the background story of it. The captives who took uh, Mr. Weinstein hostage, they sent his family a letter, a ransom note, saying, we'll let him go for $250,000. Guy's dead. You know what the family does to get him back? They pay the $250,000. Hoping that when they pay it, then the U.S. government, the Pakistani government would have the power to go in and, and rescue him and secure him because the ransom had been paid. And surely there's some type of a guarantor in there, a guarantor who can make sure that he gets... Uh, out of bondage, make sure that, that Warren got back home safely. But after that report came out, this is what his, his loving wife said. She said, uh, we are devastated by the news and the knowledge that my husband will never safely return home. We were so hopeful that those in the U.S. and Pakistani governments with the power to take action and to secure his release, the power to take action and secure his release would have done everything possible to do so. And there's no words to do justice to the disappointment and heartbreak we're going through. What is wife was saying is, we thought that the government could come through and bring my husband home. We thought either the U.S. government or the Pakistani government could do it. Uh, surely the kidnappers will let my husband go, but that didn't happen. You know why? The failure to, the failure is this. The government didn't have the power to bring him back because he was dead. The Pakistani government didn't have the power to bring him back because he was dead. Al-Qaeda didn't have the power to bring him back because he was dead. Church, when you give a promise, it's only as powerful as the person who's the one making the promise. When you make a, uh, when you make a promise, it's only as powerful as the one who is guaranteeing it. They couldn't do that. Church, here's the amazing thing. For rescue to have not have come in time, Weinstein died in captivity in the hands of his own, uh, by the hands of his own government, making his death more tragic and painful. Fortunately for us, we have one who has the power to back up what it takes for us to be free. Because all of us are held captive by sin. And a ransom had to have been paid. Jesus died on the cross, and the ransom that was paid was by His blood. Now here's the thing. If that was what happened, and it did happen... If that happened, how do we get out of this place? How do we go on? Where is our hope? Where is our future? Where are we going? Now, here's the beautiful thing. We serve a God who has the power to give us our freedom. We have a God who, is, who has the power to take us out from our captor. The promise is only as good and powerful as the one who's making the promise. Church, today, spiritually speaking, we're, going to never, we're never going to know the, the pain of a broken promise from Jesus because his promises are yes or a, yes and amen they've never been broken in fact Hebrews 7:22 talks about that promise because of this oath this promise Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant church Jesus is who he says he was and because of that the promises he gave to us are guaranteed Ephesians 1:14 the spirit of God guarantees that he will give us the inheritance that he promised that he has purchased us to be his own people he did this so we would praise him and give him glory church Jesus paid it all he robbed the grave to rescue us from its icy cold Hand. And I'm merely recognizing the fact that Jesus died for our sin and enough. 
we have to accept the fact that Jesus is no longer in the grave as well. We've got to accept the fact that there's something different about Jesus. You go to Buddha's grave, it's full. You go to Muhammad's grave, it's full. You go to Confucius's grave, it's full. But you go to our Savior's grave, and man, it's empty. Jesus had to pull off the resurrection in order for us to know that we too have victory over death, over the grave. Now, assuming Christ remained dead would, would, would mean accepting the opposite. And if Jesus isn't alive, we're still dead in our sin. If Jesus isn't alive, we don't have a chance of living forever. Church, the resurrection has nothing to do with about being a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Catholic or a Charismatic. The resurrection has everything to do with being a lover of Jesus. It's not a denominational issue. It's an issue that, that you embrace. So either we believe Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, or we don't believe it. But here's the thing, man. If you reject His victory over the grave, I can guarantee you, you will know exactly what being defeated by the grave means. But if we accept the truth, the Apostle Paul assures us that we'll be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 11. This is what the Bible says. If we use our mouth to say Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. Church, we believe in the resurrection. We believe that Jesus is who He says He was. And with our mouth, we say we believe and we're saved. And the Scripture says anyone who trusts in Him will never be disappointed. And the Scripture says, whoever, anyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Church, if you would, I'd like to just ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Today, if you've never given your life to Christ, today, if you've never embraced the belief that Jesus is who He says He was, the Son of God, sent to ransom a wayward and sinful mankind, then today's the day that you need to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. Today is the day that you need to decide whether you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He rose again. And you know, if you don't believe in the resurrection, I, the Word of God says you're still lost. The Bible says if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you're still carrying your sin. And today, would you just buy in? Would you, would you, would you go in a whole hog and say, hey, you know what? I believe this Jesus. I believe in Him. I believe that He was more than just a man who lived. I believe He's a Savior who died in my place. Today, if you would like to give your life to Him, your heart to Him, for the first time or maybe for the first time again, I invite you to pray with me. Would you stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? And I invite you to pray this prayer of faith with me, whether to come to Christ for the first time or to, to recommit your life to Him. Would you make a decision for him today? Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. And I need a Savior. I believe that you are the Son of God. And you died on my cross in my place to ransom me. I believe you were buried and you rose again. To give me victory over my sin victory over the grave and victory over death. Jesus, I believe you died for me. And I surrender my life to you. And I will live for you.
And it's in Jesus' name I pray. And amen. Y'all would like to close this service. This is kind of a neat old song that was written several years ago, but it's a song that talks about how Jesus came to do what he did. And praise God, we're still worshiping for it. We're still giving him praise for it. A little song called, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High.